أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما نافعا ربي اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل أقدة من لساني يفقه قولي السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome to the Reflections on the Risale-i Nur by Bede Özdaman Said Nursi podcast series. This is Mustafa Tuna. You can listen to the episodes of this series wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the website www.reflections-rn.org. In this episode, inshallah, we will continue reading the 27th word, which is about the, the institution of ijtihad. That a competent scholar, a competent individual, exerts utmost effort in order to come closer or closest to what pleases God when faced with an issue in which a judgment is necessary. This is more or less how we define ijtihad. And we also mentioned that for a while, sometime starting sometime in the 19th century probably, maybe earlier, uh, Muslims have, have debated whether ijtihad was pos- possible or not, still possible or not. And some have said that the gates of ijtihad are closed. You cannot do it anymore. Whatever the earlier generations have come up with in terms of religious rulings is there and we need to follow it. But new ijtihad, new rulings are not possible. The gates are closed. This is what some of the scholars, some Muslims have said. And some have opposed this. Ustad Nursi intervenes in in this debate and says that the gates of ijtihad are not closed. That is an institution that is necessary to the religion and it it is a part of the essence of the religion. However, we as individuals living in a society and environment where it is really difficult to prioritize what pleases God over various other concerns, are not allowed to go through those gates. We do not have the license to go through them. And then Ustad Nursi provided us with various reasons for why what he is saying is true, for why we do not have the license. And this, in a sense, can also be understood as the conditions of having that license. And inshallah, as a community, the ummah, the believers may strive to build up to that, uh, to to a a state in which they can meet those conditions. So the gates of ishtihad are not closed, but we need to work hard in order to have the license to go through those gates. And then today, inshallah, we are going to read the concluding remarks that come after this discussion, but that's not the end of the 27th word. The 27th word also has an addendum that Ustad Nursi adds to it later on, which is about the, about the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, their superiority over other uh, people except for the uh, Prophets and their central role in 
in in the institutionalization of our religion in the establishment of uh, our religion as conveyed by the prophet muhammad by, by our beloved messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam today inshallah we will try to go over the concluding remarks and that is about the the concept institution of madhab madhab if we were to try to translate it literally would mean walkway a path on which that on which you walk so it implies both the notion of movement that we are going in a certain direction and also the process of walking on that path and this is related to this the the target of the notion of method is both of them we want to go somewhere there is a destination that is what pleases god and when we practice that ultimately inshallah his contentment and paradise and also the process what we do on the road what does it mean that we are walking on this path without straying out what keeps us in the path and what do we do as we are walking on that path what is the etiquette of walking on that path method so this is sometimes translated as school and that is correct uh, and there are more than one types of methods for instance there are methods in fiqh jurisprudence issues of what we do and what we don't do what is forbidden what is permissible what is reprehensible what is neutral uh, what is recommended the judgments that are based on the scripture the quran and prophetic traditions the judgments that take those foundations and apply to particular circumstances these judgments are not done in a haphazard way there is a methodology that have grown developed grown and matured over time through the efforts of the scholars of islam especially scholars of jurisprudence who have paid focused concentrated their attention on on this issue so that effort that process and the rulings that comes out of that we call that fiqh literally it means understanding there is a scripture and there are various cases before us how do we understand the scripture and how do you understand this case and how do we match them how do we apply the the sources of our religion the principles and rulings that we receive from god and his messenger how do we apply those to particular circumstances this requires understanding and that is what fiqh means but the accumulation of these rulings amount to a collection of rulings that are also valid for us and that we look at when we need to find the judgment that applies to particular circumstances before us and therefore this implies that the concept of law that we are usually very familiar with uh, the difference though is when we say law especially in particular traditions of law because there are exceptions to this there is no need to go into too much detail when we say law we usually refer to a corpus of uh, legislation 
Jurisprudence, on the other hand, fiqh or jurisprudence, on the other hand, implies the pres presence of that corpus, but a more organic interaction between the the rulings, the existing rulings, and the cases in, in hand. So no ruling is literally valid, literally valid across the board, but rather they need to be applied. So that process of implementation and application brings us to the notion of fiqh and jurisprudence. And madhabs give us the methodologies of this implementation and they also provide us with a collection of rulings that are the products of the, the methodology of each madhab. We, we know in general that there are four main Ahlal Sunnah madhabs. And these are the Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, and Hanbali madhabs, schools of jurisprudence. And they are named after their founders, Imam Azam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, and Imam Hanbal. Imam Azam Abu Hanifa lived uh, by Gregorian calendar, by the solar calendar, between 699 and 767. Imam Malik lived between 711 and 795. Imam Shafi'i lived between 767 and 820. And, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal lived between 780 and 855. So the institutionalization of these madhabs, the development of their methodologies, uh, go back to the, let's say, 8th through 9th centuries very early on and they have been accepted ever since by uh, you know scholars of islam therefore there is consensus among believers that these schools of jurisprudence are all valid and they are within the circle of ahlal sunnah i.e within the circle of those who are following in the footsteps of the prophet muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam there are other madhabs that have emerged over uh, his you know, over time in history that have not found many followers and disappeared some of them are within the circle of ahl sunnah some of them are not so four is what has remained and that we know generally uh, within the sunni circle of muslims uh, the, the shias have their uh, schools of jurisprudence and aside from the schools of jurisprudence there are also schools of theology and the the two major schools of theology that are with that are within the circle of ahl sunnah are those that are founded by imam maturidi and imam ash'ari today our discussion is primarily about schools of jurisprudence fiqh schools madhabs uh, madhabs of fiqh understanding and application and law not theology inshallah so, Ustad Nursi in this concluding in these concluding remarks will tell us why each and every one of those madhabs, although they have different methodologies and therefore they come to different conclusions in some particulars, some details of the application of uh, the principles of uh, you know Islamic jurisprudence. Although they come to different conclusions, they are still valid. Ustad Nursi will explain to us why that is the case and why we should be following 
these madhabs because that is an ailment of the Muslim community that is becoming more and more serious as time passes partly uh, because of ideological interventions in the Muslim Ummah uh, you can find some people who say that this is not necessary this is even wrong and everything needs to be rethought and uh, that is a discussion that may require its own session and then perhaps even more dangerously because of uh, the the fact that it is more widespread there are many people who do not know what madhab is and fall into ignorance with regard to what they can and cannot do with regard to the application and implementation of religion this is not too much of a problem when a believer lives in a traditional Muslim society in which the one or another madhab is institutionalized already throughout history across generations and therefore even though they do not know what madhab is they are actually following one madhab and therefore they are more or less safe uh, with regard to uh, the, the closeness of what they are doing to what pleases God. However, and this is probably more valid for English language speakers, and since our podcasts are in, in English, it, it is worth mentioning it here. However, when these people are, in a sense, plucked out of their traditional societies, communities, as a result of uh, usually migration, and put in contexts where those communal bonds are not functioning anymore, and perhaps put uh, together from various different communities they see the differences among each other's practices but they don't know the source of this and this leads to what some people sometimes call uh, to some extent tongue-in-cheek Telfiki practices practices that mix and match various methods. This is dangerous because each method has its own methodology and when you start mixing and matching you lose methodology and when you lose methodology you lose measure. Measure shows us where we are supposed to be going in darkness, it projects light on our path. This may not be too big of an issue when uh, the believers practices are not challenged but come next generation, when the new Muslims, the, the new generation of Muslims in an uh, in immigrant community are coming of age and they are not even familiar with what their parents had learned back in their tra traditional societies, they don't have measure and they don't know what to follow. They fall in a state where they don't know what to do and, and that uh, uncertainty may be a cause of them not taking religion very seriously. So these are not uh, simply theoretical issues. They have pra practical implications and those practical implications are significant with regard to the preservation of uh, Muslim identity in non-Muslim immigrant contexts and also with regard to the, the salvation deliverance of each and every individual through their, uh, th through their aspiration to do what pleases God. 
So inshallah, we will now read this uh, Hatima, the concluding remarks that provide very important uh, guiding principles uh, about how we should uh, approach this notion of madhab, walkways, paths, uh, schools of jurispr jurisprudence. Hatime, concluding remark. Asırlara göre şeriatlar değişir. Sacred law, sharia. Sacred law changes according to ages. Sharia, uh, there are many words that if you were to translate them broadly, mean road or path uh, that have entered into our terminology of Islam, into the terminology of Islam, and that are very useful. And it is uh, actually important and I would say necessary to learn these terms in their original Arabics or in the versions that have entered into the language of some of the more traditional Muslim societies such as Urdu or Turkish or Persian, etc. Sharia means road too. But it is a particular type of road, a road that would that takes you to clear, useful water. In a sense, a road that takes you to deliverance. Of course, there's this is metaphorical that that that original literal meaning then expands and starts to mean something else, acquires new connotations. Sharia for us means sacred law. What God wants us to do, how God wants us to be. And God does not leave us alone. He does not want us to be in a certain way, to do certain things and leave us alone, but rather he tells us. He gives us the necessary information so that we can know what pleases him. He tells that to us through his, his messengers. Messengers, which corresponds to the word Rasul, come with new sharias, sacred laws, and they are, they are charged with the task of uh, promulgating the new sacred law. So Musa salam, Moses, for instance, came with a new uh, sacred law. Isa salam, did not come, uh, come with a new sacred law, but he was charged with promulgating the sacred law that had come to Musa salam, and he, he made corrections to what, what had corrupted over time in, in the sacred law that had come to Moses salam, corrections and improvements. Our Prophet Muhammad وسلم, came with the final and most perfect sacred law. Now, when we say most perfect, what we mean is that each sacred law was perfect in relation to the community, society that it was sent to. However, humanity matures over time. Humanity improves and matures over time and therefore the laws that best prepare them for paradise also change because new circumstances require new applications. So humanity has reached the most mature state that it can ever attain at the time of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and his companions. His companions were chosen. And this 
can also give us some clues as to why the following discussion is going to be about the companions of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the Sahabi. They were chosen. God created all the spirits. He chose the best among them as the messengers and prophets. And then the next best he chose as the companions of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So when we say humanity, humanity matured, we do refer to technicalities. Like for instance, the use of uh, writing is very important in this context because it is writing that makes the preservation of the sacred law without corruption possible. And at the time of the companions and Prophet wasallam, this had come to a stage the human ability to write and preserve texts had come to a stage where it was possible to preserve it without corruption. Within the, within the realm of causes and effects, of course. But aside from that, they were the most mature with regard to the states of their hearts and their intellects. So, because this Sharia came to this community and their followers, that is us, it is the final and most perfect Sharia. It is the final and most perfect sacred law that reflects everything that God wants to convey to humanity with regard to what pleases Him. Asırlara göre şeriatlar değişir. The Sharia's sacred laws change according to ages, from age to age. Belki bir asırda Kavimlere göre ayrı ayrı şeriatlar, peygamberler gelebilir ve gelmiştir. In fact, in a single time period, in a single age, there can be various uh, prophets and various sharias that those prophets teach in accordance with the needs and circumstances of different groups of people living in that same time period. We can try to visualize this. Let's take a group of people from the very northern parts of the world and from among the Inuits. And then let's take a group of people from the Bedouins of the Sahara Desert. And then let's take a group of people from among the mountain peoples of India. And then let's take a group of people from Mesopotamia. Let's say about 3,000, 4,000 years ago. First of all, the populations will be much smaller than what we are used to today. Let's say that each of these communities are con composed of um, from 1,000 to 5,000 individuals. The likelihood of them knowing about one, one another is very low. The likelihood of them exchanging uh, commodities, ideas, words, thoughts, so on and so forth is very low. It is not impossible and there has always been some level of exchange, but it is very slow. The rate is very low. If a prophet is sent to the nomadic peoples of the Sahara Desert, the message he will bring, the sacred law that tells the peoples of the Sahara Desert what pleases God in terms of their, uh, the, in, ter in terms of their actions, day-to-day -day actions is obviously going to be different from the message that's brought to the Inuits in the north.
one lives in a very cold climate one lives in a very very hot climate one lives by extracting their livelihood from the sea eating fish and wearing things made of fish skin and so on and so forth the other lives with whatever the desert provides to them another lives with whatever the, the the mountains provide to them each needs their own profit and each needs their own sacred law this is why we know that many many prophets were sent to humanity according to some narrations the number of prophets that were sent throughout history amounts to the number of companions that the prophet muhammad had and if we take the last farewell hajj as a measure for this upwards of 124,000 companions gathered in that hajj there may be there may be there, there has to be a margin of error in this but that gives us an idea thousands and thousands of prophets many of them sent with particular individualized sacred laws that applied to their particular communities and this is fine this is what those peoples needed Hatemül Enbiya'dan sonra şeriat-ı kübrası her asırda her kavme kafi geldiğinden muhtelif şeriatlara ihtiyaç kalmamıştır. After the seal of prophets, which is Prophet Muhammed sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem, after the seal of prophets, because his great sharia is sufficient for all peoples in all ages, the need for different sharias, different and differing sacred laws is lifted. That's not needed anymore. The sharia that he brought is perfect and it is applicable across the board. There is no human group out there in the world that we can find that would not benefit from the sacred law that the Prophet ﷺ brought and that cannot apply it. This includes the, uh, you know, tribes of the Amazons. If they were to, if they were blessed with this message, they would be able to implement it under the circumstances that they live. So it is most perfect, broadest, applicable across the board. Therefore, there is no need for new, different, differing Sharias. Fakat Teferruatta bir derece ayrı ayrı mezheplere ihtiyaç kalmıştır. However, to some extent there is still a need for different mezhabs in particulars, in details. And since we explain what mezhab means, we are not going to keep explaining it again and again. We are going to use the word mezhabs. There is a need to some extent for different mezhabs different methods of implementing the sacred law that the Prophet ﷺ brought in particulars, not in what we earlier talked about as the necessary requirements of religion. Prayer, five times prayer. Fasting, the, the necessity of hajj, uh, obligatory alms, that pork is haram, that wine is haram and so on and so forth. These are matters that do not necessitate any further judgment. They are clear, they are 
known. They are known elements of the Sharia. But then there may be particulars. And the, the implementation of the principles and broad rulings of the Sharia in these particular cases may require some flexibility. And this is where the madhabs come into the picture. Evet. Nasıl ki mevsimlerin değişmesiyle elbiseler değişir. Mizaçlara göre ilaçlar tebeddül eder. Öyle de asırlara göre şeriatlar değişir. Milletlerin istidadına göre ahkam tahavvül eder. Yes, as the outfits, clothings that we wear change according to the seasons. In the winter, we wear dark colored, thicker, warmer clothes. In the summer, we wear light colored, lighter clothes. The clothing, outfits change according to seasons. And also medication, medication, medicine changes according to the constitution of individuals. You don't give the same medicine to each and every individual. You don't give medicine across the board. That's why you need physicians. Physician checks you, learns about you, and tries to match the best medication that is going to provide the best healing for the problem that you have. For a child, if we give five milliliters of a particular medicine, for an adult, we might need 25 milliliters. For a woman, who is pregnant, we might need a particular medicine. For an old man, we might need some other medicine. This goes further and we can take the particular constitutions of individuals in prescribing medicine. Although this is to some extent neglected in modern conventional medicine, but if it were to be taken into consideration, it would be even more helpful. And there are some medical practices that do this, homeopathy for instance. The, the constitution of an individual is a very important part of what kind of remedy that the homeopath is going to administer. So, as clothing changes in accordance with the seasons and medication changes, different medication is administered in accordance with the constitution or circumstances of individuals, in the same way, the sacred laws change between ages and their rulings take new appearances according to the aptitudes of each nation, each group of people. Çünkü ahkam-ı şer'iyenin teferruat kısmı ahvali beşeriyeye bakar. This is important because the particulars of the rulings of şeria look to, are based on, depend on the circumstances, states of humanity. The particulars of the rulings of the Sharia are determined by looking at the states, different states of humanity, human societies. Ona göre gelir, ilaç olur. They come in accordance with the particular state of each uh, human society and then we can consider it a medicine, a healing medicine. NBI salife zamanında tabakat-ı beşeriye birbirinden çok uzak. Ve seciyeleri hem bir derece kaba, hem şiddetli ve efkarca iptidai ve bedeviyete yakın olduğundan o zamandaki şeriatlar onların haline muvafık bir tarzda ayrı ayrı gelmiştir. Now, at the time of the earlier prophets, because different segments of humanity 
were far away from one another and their characters were to some extent coarse and harsh and their ideas were primitive and close to the the way of life of Bedouins the sharias the sacred laws at that time were coming in accordance with their needs and separate from one another they were far away from one another therefore they were receiving different uh, sharias now these uh, descriptors should not be taken as pejorative they are not disparaging remarks Ustad Nursi is referring to a reality peoples who lived in earlier ages their technologies were much less developed than than ours their ability to transform nature in order to fit to their needs was much lower than than ours and therefore they were fitting themselves and their ways of life to the requirements of nature and this is what we should understand uh, primitive as in this context it is like the bedouins of the desert they are primitive but they are perfect in the context that they are living you would wish that you were also as primitive as they are if you if you had to live there so this is not a moral comparison this is an expression of a reality they were not as able as us in terms of transforming nature to fit their needs and therefore they were adjusting themselves and their ways of life to the requirements of nature and that we are able to transform nature does not necessarily mean that it's a good thing either we are ruining it and that will probably have uh, not probably we are already seeing those consequences that will have tremendous and very harmful consequences so this is not a moral judgment this is the expression of a fact those peoples lived far away from one another and these their circumstances differed from one another significantly because they were adjusting their ways of life and themselves to the circumstances in which they lived to the nature in which they lived and because there's a lot of diversity in nature there was a lot of differences in their ways of life and thinking and uh, characters and so on and so forth and therefore they were all sent different sharias hatta bir kıtada bir asırda ayrı ayrı peygamberler ve şeriatlar bulunurmuş to the extent that there could be or there would be separate prophets and sharias in the same landmass at the same age let's say the arabian peninsula at the same same time here simultaneously there could be many prophets that were each sent to a different tribe a different group of people living on the arabian peninsula or africa or wherever Sonra ahir zaman peygamberinin gelmesiyle insanlar güya iptidai derecesinden iddadiye derecesine terakki ettiğinden çok inkılabat ve ihtilatat ile akvamı beşeriye bir ders alacak, bir tek muallimi dinleyecek, bir tek şeriatla amel edecek vaziyete geldiğinden ayrı ayrı şeriata ihtiyaç kalmamıştır, ayrı ayrı muallime de lüzum görülmemiştir. However, with the coming of the prophet of the end of times it is as if humanity has uh, 
graduated from the elementary school, from the elementary level to the secondary level or a higher level. And humanity has taken a form as a result of many transformations and revolutions that they have gone through, entered into a condition in which it is now able to listen to a single teacher and act upon a single sacred law. As a result of this, the need for different sharias has been lifted. It is not needed anymore. And we do not need uh, separate teachers anymore either. The need for separate teachers is not seen there anymore. Fakat tamamen bir seviyeye gelmediğinden ve bir tarzı hayat-ı içtimaiye de giymediğinden mezhefler taadüd etmiştir. Yet, because they have not completely become level, they have not completely become identical, which is of course not something that we would, we would even desire, because diversity and difference in in the nature, in the creation and among humanity is a manifestation of interplace, if that's a word we can use, we are using it metaphorically, interplace among the manifestations of different names of God. So for all of his names to manifest, we need diversity. Therefore, humanity has not become level. Not everybody, not every society is the same. And this is a good thing. They are close enough. They have become similar enough to be able to listen to a single teacher and to follow the single sharia that he brought. Because humanity has not become all the same, has not become level, because they have not, uh, in a sense, clothed themselves with a single way of life, social life, single way of societal life, the madhabs have multiplied. So their ways of life are different and they are not all the same. And therefore, there still is a need for different methods of implementing the single sharia that the Prophet, the single teacher brought. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Eğer beşerin ekseriyeti mutlakası bir mektebi alinin talebesi gibi bir tarzı hayat içtimaiyeyi giyse, bir seviyeye girse, o vakit mezhepler tevhid edebilir. If the overwhelming majority of humanity were to wear, were to clothe themselves with the same way of societal life, like the students of a single school, as if, imagine a school where students are wearing uniforms, if, if the overwhelming majority of people were to live in the same way, were to clothe themselves like a uniform with the same way of societal life, and they were leveled, they all became the same, then the madhabs could be unified. So there could be a unification of madhabs and there could even be an effort that, that would be justified to unify them. However, fakat bu hali alem o hale müsaade etmediği gibi mezahipte bir olamaz. However, as the given circumstances of life the state of the realm in which we live does not allow that, does not allow us to all wear a single uniform and become the same, the methods could not be unified either. So that is not something that we even want or desire. The multiplicity of the methods is a good thing. Eğer desen, 
hak bir olur. Nasıl böyle 4 ve 12 mezhebin muhtelif ahkamları hak olabilir? If you said truth is one, how can the rulings of such four or twelve methods can all be true? Here one might think what is the twelve methods we talked about four. We also said that over time in history many other methods, many other uh, methodologies of implementing the sacred law have emerged but because they did not find followers they disappeared. We have four that is left but the number of methods that could be considered within the circle of Ahl sunnah is more than four. Those that survived and the major ones are four. So if one were to ask truth is one how can be four or twelve methods and what they say that their rulings can all be true? El cevap answer. Bir su beş muhtelif mizaçlı hastalara göre nasıl beş hüküm alır? Think of this. Water. It's a single entity. Water. It can take five different rulings according to uh, the, the constitutions of the the conditions of five different patients or five different human beings. Şöyle ki, this is how. Birisine hastalığının mizacına göre su ilaçtır, tıbben vaciptir. So for one of them, because of the circumstances of his uh, sickness, because of the constitution of his sickness, water can be a medicine and therefore medically it is obligated upon this person. Vacip. Diğer birisine hastalığı için zehir gibi muzırdır, tıbben ona haramdır. For another one, it can be harmful as poison and medically that is forbidden for that person. For instance, right after an operation, a stomach operation. You cannot give this person water. You have to you know, give IV because the stomach needs to recover. If you were to give water, he would probably throw up and so on and so forth. So water is forbidden for this person. Life-giving water is forbidden. For this person. Diğer birisine az zarar verir. Tıbben, tıbben ona mekruhtur. For another one, water may, may be slightly harmful and therefore medically it's going to be reprehensible for this person. Mekruh. Diğer birisine zararsız menfaat verir. Tıbben ona sünnettir. For another one, it does not have any harm and it is beneficial. It is not obligate. It's not like medicine he doesn't have to take it if he takes it there is benefit and there is no harm medically it is sunnah for this person the sunnah of course is what the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did or approved or recommended and if we do that we have a reward a spiritual reward and we, there is no harm in doing it but we are not necessarily obligated to do it like the four rakahs that we pray before asr prayer before the obligated uh, asr prayer, right? If we do it, there is tremendous benefit in it. If we don't do it, we are not accountable for it. There is a nuance there, of course, that if we intentionally and consistently leave all the sunnas aside because thinking that, you know, that this is not obligated, then there is the problem of not following the Prophet wasallam, and that's a great problem. So we don't do it. Right. So going back to this discussion, for another person, there is a benefit in drinking the water and there is no harm and therefore it is sunnah for him. 
And finally, diğer birisine ne zarardır, ne menfaattir, afiyetle içsin, tıbben ona mübahtır. And for another one, it is neither harm nor benefit. May he drink in a state of well-being from a medical point of view. It is neutral for him. It is mubah. It is permitted. Not obligated, not forbidden, not recommended, uh, not uh, reprehensible. Just permitted. İşte hak burada taadüd etti. Now you see, truth took multiple forms here. Beşi de haktır. All five are true. Sen diyebilir misin ki, su yalnız ilaçtır, yalnız vaciptir, başka hükmü yoktur. Can you say that water is only medicine and it is only obligated? There is no other ruling that can apply to water. Of course not. İşte bunun gibi. Ahkam-ı ilahiye mezheplere, hikmet-i ilahiyenin sevkiyle ittiba edenlere göre değişir. Hem hak olarak değişir ve her birisi de hak olur, maslahat olur. So in the same way, divine rulings change in accordance uh, in accordance with the followers of each mezhep who are directed to that mezhep with divine wisdom. So what do we understand here? For instance, I am Hanafi. I was born in a Hanafi community and that's how I grew up. I became Hanafi, right? This is not, uh, this is not random. This is not a happen chance. God has wisdom and with his wisdom, he put me in a Hanafi community that must be the best for me. And sometimes people change their madhabs. Well, they are directed by divine wisdom into that new madhab and therefore that is best for them. But there is always divine wisdom that is functioning in, if you will, behind the scene. So the divine rulings change in accordance with the followers of each madhab that are each directed to that madhab with divine wisdom. Hem hak olarak değişir ve her birisi de hak olur, maslahat olur. And it also changes as truth. So... The divine ruling that applies to one madhab is truth for that madhab. And the divine ruling that applies to another madhab is truth for that madhab. It becomes beneficial. It becomes the manifestation of societal benefit for that community. And the other ruling becomes the manifestation of societal benefit for the other community. Mesela, Hikmet-i ilahiyenin tensibiyle İmam Şafii'ye ittiba eden, ekseriyet itibariyle Hanefilere nispeten köylülüğe ve bedeviliğe daha yakın olup cemaati bir tek vücut hükmüne getiren hayatı içtimaiyede nakıs olduğundan her biri bizzat dergahı Kadıyül Hacata kendi derdini söylemek ve hususi matlubunu istemek için imam arkasında Fatiha'yı birer birer okuyorlar. For example, those who have followed Imam Şafii with the approval of divine wisdom usually usually in comparison to those who follow the hanafi school of jurisprudence they are more likely to be peasants villagers and bad ones nomadic peoples of the deserts or mountains and they lack in the societal life that makes the community that makes the community into a single body and therefore, when they stand before the Qadi of all needs, before the one who delivers 
the the solution to all needs that is god when they st stand before god in the presence of god in order to express their concerns what they need uh, to to ask for their private individual demands they each recite fatiha behind the imam so what does this mean in the prayer in a congregational prayer when we stand behind the imam line up behind the imam and the imam uh, does the, the takbir of iftitah the, the beginning the, the opening te uh, takbir and then the imam recites fatiha right in the shafi'i school the followers the followers behind the imam each have to recite the fatiha silently in the hanafi school in the hanafi madhab you don't do that you just remain silent and and follow the imam you deputize the imam uh, in in his recitation of the fatiha in the fatiha the imam says alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen praise and gratitude be to the lord of the realms ar-rahman ar-rahim he is the most merciful he is the mercy giver maliki yawmiddin he is the owner of the day of judgment only you do we worship now when the imam says this everybody behind the imam in the hanafi school intend the same with the imam but they don't say it. they deputize the imam for this and we ask from you alone same everybody behind the imam in the hanafi method deputize the imam for saying this they intend it but the imam says it in the shafi'i legal school everybody is obligated to say it behind the imam so this is what ustad nursi is referring to here he, and he's talking about statistical generalizations he's saying statistically generally those who have followed imam shafi'i tend to be more likely to be villagers and bedouins and we are not going to think about the circumstances of modern day world where everybody is a is an is an urbanite right we are going to think about say the 18th century 17th century 16th century 10th century those who have followed imam shafi have tended to be villagers and bedouins living closer to nature and those who have followed imam azam abu hanifa have tended to be urbanites and therefore Ustad nursi says those who follow followed imam shafi again in general lack in that societal life that makes the community as into a single body and therefore it makes perfect sense for them to each ask for what they need even when they are in a congregational prayer individually whereas because the hanafis tend to be urbanized in general and therefore they are a part of a more organized more institutionalized societal life it makes more sense for them to stand behind the imam and preserve the unity of community that societal unity and remain silent and deputize the imam to speak on their behalf and therefore this is truth itself and and pure wisdom what wisdom requires imam-ı azama ittiba edenler ekseriyet mutlaka itibariyle islami hükümetlerin ekserisi o mezhebi iltizam etmesiyle medeniyete şehirliğe daha yakın ve hayat-ı içtimaiye müstaid olduğundan bir cemaat 
bir şahıs hükmüne girip bir tek adam umum namına söyler, umum kalben onu tasdik ve rabdı kalb edip onun sözü umumun sözü hükmüne geçtiğinden Hanefi mezhebine göre imam arkasında Fatiha okunmaz. Now, we are we mentioned what is what applies to the Shafi'i uh, school of jurisprudence and we also talked about what applies to the Hanafi school of jurisprudence and Ustad Nursi is going to tell us the historical uh, facts that have turned the followers of Imam Azam uh, into a, a single communal body as a result of the societal life that they experience and the historical circumstances that, ha that have prepared this. Now, those who follow Imam Azam, that's Imam Azam Ebu Hanifa, as a result of the fact that most Muslim governments have chosen this school, so Muslim governments overwhelmingly have chosen this school of jurisprudence, and those who live closer to the center of government, as a result, have chosen this school of jurisprudence. They have followed their governments and become parts of this madhab. As a result of that, they tend to be closer to civilized urban life and they have a higher aptitude for societal life. They are not like Bedouins who are living in the wilderness of the desert in very small numbers and, and they have less individualization and more conformity to society. As a result of this, a community among them takes the ruling of a single person and a single person that is the imam expresses what they need to say for all of them and all of them approve uh, and affirm what the imam says with their hearts and connect their hearts to the imam's heart in the presence of god and his words take the ruling of the words of all of them and therefore in the hanafi school of jurisprudence the Fatiha is not recited behind the Imam. Those who line up behind the Imam do not recite the Fatiha. Okunmaması aynı hak ve mahzi hikmettir. That it is not recited is truth itself, the very truth, and it is pure wisdom. So we will have another example here. Hem mesela, madem şeriat, tabiatın tecavüzatına set çekmekle onu tadil edip nefsi emmareyi terbiye eder. For example, since sharia draws a line before the uh, transgressions of nature and fixes it and disciplines the evil commanding soul. Let's try to understand it a bit more. Sharia, right? Sharia is how we implement what pleases God in our day-to-day -day life. God wants us to do certain things and not to do certain things. And this is a test. If we do what pleases God, we earn his good pleasure, we earn his reward, and we go to paradise and so on and so forth. If we reject it, we earn his wrath, we are rebellious, we are disobedient, and, and, and we deserve hell. Why then would anybody choose what does not please God? Well, there is this thing called the, the evil commanding soul that pulls us in that direction, that 
shows us things that are ugly and evil and displeasing to God as beautiful. It pesters us, keeps asking, keeps asking. And Satan whispers from behind. So the animal nature of a human being is prone to transgression. But Sharia, sacred law, draws a line before that, that animal nature and says, no, you cannot go beyond this. It disciplines, it fixes and disciplines that, that animal nature of the human being and therefore disciplines the, the lower evil commanding soul too. Elbette ekser etbağı, köylü ve nimbedevi ve amelilikle meşgul, meşgul olan şafi mezhebine göre kadına temas ile abdest bozulur, az bir necaset zarar verir. In that case, of course, in the Shafi'i madhab, the, the majority of the followers of which are peasants, villagers, half-civilized, half-Bedouins, and uh, busy with manual labor, manual laborers, it makes sense that touching a woman or touching the, the skin of someone of the other uh, sex invalidates wudu, ablution, ritual cleanliness, and a, even a little bit of filth is harmful. What does this mean? In the Shafi'i legal school, if a man touches a woman, that invalidates his wudu. If a woman touches a man, that invalidates her wudu. In the Shafi'i legal school, let's say you, need, you are going to pray. In the prayer, cleanliness of the outfits, clothing, is one of the major requirements of the prayer. It's an obligation. Your prayer is not going to be valid if your clothing, your outfits, or your body as well are not clean, if there is filth on it. In the Shafi'i legal school, even a little bit of filth is not acceptable. It has to be completely clean. In the Hanafi legal school, on the other hand, touching the opposite sex does not invalidate wudu, and uh, there is there, there is dispensation for a certain amount of filth to, to exist on the clothing. So Ustad Nursi says, because the majority of the followers of the Shafi'i Madhab are villagers, half uh, Bedouins, and manual laborers, touching a woman will invalidate the wudu, and in even a little bit of filth is going to be harmful. Why? because the, the, the animal nature of these people will be more prone to do these things, like touching the, the, the, other, the other sex or not paying too much attention to cleanliness and perhaps going to prayer with a little bit of filth on the body and so on and so forth. This doesn't mean that the followers of other methods don't have that animal nature either. They also have that animal nature, but the societal life that they are living in, the urban life that they are living in, already disciplines some of those uh, instincts and inclinations, and therefore there isn't an there is not need for an extra uh, legal ruling to draw a line before them. So the principle of don't touch the opposite sex unless it is your mahram, unless it is your wife, etc., or the principle of remain clean is valid across the board. Cleanliness is valid across the board. But people living in the desert, people living in the villages, pe people who are earning their livelihood through menial jobs, maybe dealing with animals, so on and so forth, are, are 
more likely to be exposed to filth, for instance, and therefore less likely to take it seriously. Whereas somebody who lives in the city and, and hygiene is everywhere is going to be more likely to have an inner reprehension toward filth and will be easier for this person to remain clean anyway. So ekseriyet itibariyle hayat-ı içtimaiyeye giren nim medeni şeklini alan insanlar ittiba ettikleri mezhebi Hanefi'ye göre mezz-i nisvan abdest bozmaz bir dirhem kadar necasete fetva var. And on the other hand, among those people who follow the Hanefi mezhep who overwhelmingly live in societal life, in urban communal societal life, who are half urbanized, half civilized, or, or full, fully civilized, but we are talking about the great majority, overwhelming majority, according to the legal school, the school of jurisprudence that they are following, touching a woman does not invalidate wudu, and there is dispensation or fatwa, there is an opinion, scholarly opinion, that gives them dispensation for filth up to a dirham to exist on their bodies or clothing during prayer and a dirham is about uh, three grams but again we should we should not take this in a mistaken way and think that the Hanafi legal school permits filth no the idea is that those who are urbanites who are educated civilized etc who are living in conditions where hygiene is already the, the norm are less likely to be exposed to this and therefore there is less need to emphasize this in law. Whereas those who are peasants and Bedouins and, and involved in menial jobs and so on and so forth are more likely to be exposed to filth and therefore there is a need for some extra emphasis in law to tell them, look, this is important, don't do it, be careful about it. Makes perfect sense. And again, we need to keep in mind that this is about Shafi'is and Hanafi's across history, not today. With the, the urbanization of the 20th, 21st centuries, these may have transformed. To some extent, of course. İşte bir amele ile bir efendiyi nazara alacağız. So, we are going to compare a, uh, a menial laborer, a blue-collar worker and a gentleman. Amele tarz-ı maişet itibariyle ecnebi kadınlarla ihtilata, temasa ve bir ocak yanında oturmaya ve mülevves şeylerin içine karışmaya müptela olduğundan sanat ve maişet itibariyle tabiat ve nefsi emmaresi meydanı boş bulup tecavüz edebilir. Because the menial laborer, because of the circumstances in, in which he lives, uh, has to interact with foreign women and perhaps touch them, be close to them, let's say you know, these are working in a farm field, men and women are working in a farm field close by, so the, the, the very necessities of the, the labor that they are conducting will require that they live in proximity and perhaps touch and so on and so forth. Perhaps they are going to sit around a fire and eat from the same container. And also because this menial laborer ha has to touch and be among filthy things, because of his craft and because of the, uh, the way of life that he, he has, his nature and his evil commanding soul may find a way out and, and, and overwhelm him and transgress. 
Onun için şeriat onların hakkında o tecavüzatı set çekmek için abdest bozulur temas etme, namazını iptal eder bulaşma, manevi kulağında bir sadayı semavi çınlatır. And because of this, the sharia rings a heavenly sound in their, in their metaphysical ears. Sadnus is speaking metaphorically here, of course. In their metaphysical ears, this this heavenly sound keeps ringing and says, "Look, your wudu is going to become invalidated. Don't touch. Your prayer is not going to be valid. Don't don't uh, smear yourself with that with that uh, filth." Therefore, the Sharia draws a line before these possible transgressions and helps them to stay away from those transgressions. Ama o efendi namuslu olmak şartıyla adat-ı içtimaiyesi itibariyle ahlak-ı umumiye namına ecnebi kadınlara temasa müptela değil. On the other hand, that gentleman on condition that he is honorable and keeps his modesty. So this is again not to disparage manual manual workers and to suggest that the gentleman is superior to the manual worker morally or not. No, this is about the circumstances that they are living. This is not about their personalities. This is about what the environment does to them. And in some cases, the gentleman, even though he is living in an environment that is likely to protect him more, may not be honorable, may not be keen on preserving his modesty. So Ustad Nursi says, on condition that he is honorable and keeps his modesty, the gentleman, because of the, the customs of the social life that he is living in and the communally accepted moral norms that are applicable in the society that he lives in, he is not going to be prone to touching or interacting with foreign women and the hygiene of the civilized life that he is living in is not going to expose him to filthy things. Again, this is written with a traditional Muslim society in mind in which, especially in urban contexts, men and women were segregated more carefully and women could stay in their house, did not have to go to the farm field to work with the men and so on and so forth. If you if you were to read ethnographic observations among Muslim societies, you would see that this was a fact, a very, very clearly observable fact in the rural Muslim societies, as in all rural societies, women tended to go to the farm field too because they were needed as farm hands. The society, the community could not uh, and would not be able to survive without their labor. Whereas in the city, crafts and, and professions were usually, usually for men and they were the ones who were charged with the duty of going out and earning, earning money and livelihood and women could stay home. They could study, they could socialize and so on and so forth, but they could stay home. And therefore, the, the sexes did not intermingle as much as they did in rural areas. This obviously is not the situation for many of the, the, the urbanites today. We need to think about what can we do in order to fit ourselves to the requirements of those, those principles. Onun için şeriat, mezhebi Hanefi namıyla ona şiddet ve azimet göstermemiş, ruhsat tarafını gösterip hafifletmiştir. Because of this, sharia has not shown him its more strict face 
and spoken to him through the mouth of the Hanafi Madhab and, and, and shown him the, the dispensation and made things lighter for him and said, Elin dokunmuş ise abdestin bozulmaz. Hicab, hicab edip kalabalık içinde su ile istinca etmemenin zararı yoktur. Bir dirhem kadar fetva vardır. So it has said, if your hand touched by mistake, your wudu is not invalidated. If you are embarrassed to wash yourself after using the bathroom with wudu in a crowded place where people can notice that you are from the like, sound of the water, that notice that you are washing your private areas, etc., it is okay. There is fatwa, there is dispensation uh, for up to a dirham, three grams. In this way, the sharia speaking through the mouth of the Hanafi Madhab saves this person from whisperings. And this is another discussion that we may uh, have to do at another time, but sometimes being overly scrupulous is not a good thing. It opens a door for Satan to come in and mess up your mind. You went to the bathroom, you took all the measures in order to clean yourself completely you waited enough and then you took wudu and as you are taking wudu you have this sensation that there might be some wetness is it or is it not is it or is it not you check you don't see anything but then as you are taking wudu you feel that sensation again at that point it is better to ignore it because it may be a, a trick that the satan is playing on you so sometimes being over the scrupulous is not a good thing and this Hanafi gentleman who was living in the you know city and you know overall hygiene and so on and so forth did not let's say have the opportunity to wash himself and living among lots of people and in the crowd he did not have the opportunity that there might be some filth left on his body then may be a major concern and cause of this obsessive whisperings obsessive thoughts that may be coming to his his mind as he is praying and that is a way for satan to mess his mind up right so sharia has saved protected him from that and said look there is dispensation for up to a certain amount therefore keep going and pray your prayer and and, and you are fine işte denizden iki katre sana misal onlara kıyas et so these are two examples like two drops from the sea for you compare the rest to it two examples of how different rulings in different madhabs can both be true and and perfectly fitting the circumstances that the followers of those madhabs are living in and therefore pure wisdom mizan sharani mizanıyla şeriat mizanlarını bu suretle muvazene edebilirsen et if you can evaluate the balanced judgments of the sharia with the scale of the mizan of sharani go ahead and do it here what ustad nursi is uh, referring to is the book titled mizan by imam sharani this was a uh, shafi'i scholar of islam the jurist who lived between 1492 and uh, 1565 and wrote a book uh, called the supreme scale mizan al-kubra and in that book he compares the rulings of different schools of jurisprudence especially the hanafi and shafi'i schools and explains the wisdoms in these differences so Ustad nursi is referring us to that book and saying 
if you can go ahead take a look at that book and compare the two examples that I have given with the many examples that Imam Sha'rani is giving giving there so that you understand this matter even better so we finished this uh, concluding remark at the end of the uh, 27th word and before an addendum that Ustad Nursi adds to it there's a beautiful salawat here but I think we are really out of time inshallah in the next episode of the 27th word we will begin with the salawat uh, try to provide a translation too and then move on subhanaka la ilma lana illa ma allamtana innaka antal alimul hakim wa akhir dawahum an alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin al-fatiha